are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. everyone out there in Alberta, Canada, and around the world. My name is Jacob Sperling, and I am the host of the Unsung Lung podcast. Thanks for joining us for the August episode of the show, and we have a very timely topic today, so I know you'll love it. Just a reminder, if you haven't yet, venture on over to www.ablung.ca and check out Alberta Lung's website. There you can see everything from our amazing team members to all the initiatives that we offer, and a link to donate. Your support keeps programs like this show going, and we can't thank you enough for your continued support. Okay, on to today's episode. So, as I said, today's topic is very timely. We'll be speaking to Dr. Paige Lacey. Dr. Lacey is a University of Alberta professor and researcher who obtained her PhD in cell physiology from the Wellington School of Medicine at the University of I hope I'm saying this right, Otago, in New Zealand. Now, Dr. Lacey's research explores molecular and cellular mechanisms which regulate inflammatory responses in those with allergies, asthma, and lung diseases in general. However, the topic we'll be discussing today is her research on the effects of wildfire smoke on the lungs of frontline workers. Her paper, Short-Term Acute Exposure to Wildfire Smoke and Lung Function Among Royal Canadian Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP officers, delves into how wildfire smoke affects respiratory illnesses for those who were deployed at the Fort McMurray wildfires in the summer of 2016. Today, we'll be diving into that paper and how the wildfire smoke in our province and around the world has been affecting people's day-to-day living. We've all seen those incredible photos taken in New York City where you can barely see the skyscrapers across the street. I know us here in Edmonton have had to deal with varying degrees of poor air quality all summer long. But how does this poor air quality affect those with normal lung function? How does it affect those with poor lung function or even a lung disease that is already crippling as it is? These are all questions and topics that we'll cover today with Dr. Lacey. We'll also discuss long-term effects of wildfire smoke on the body, how smoke can affect our mental health, and why we feel sluggish in these kinds of conditions. So sit back as we unravel the complex ways in which wildfires impact our well-being, ranging from immediate effects on respiratory health to long-term implications for mental health. And with that, I'll pass us through to my interview with University of Alberta professor, Dr. Late Paige Lacey. Okay, so as I mentioned in the introduction, this is an incredibly timely topic as we'll be discussing the effects of wildfire smoke on our lung and overall health with Dr. Paige Lacey. How's it going today, Dr. Lacey? Oh, hello. Everything going good where in, in where you're at? All all your studies and everything going okay? <laughs> I guess as yeah, super general. Yeah, going quite well. Um, of course, we're all impacted by the wildfire smoke, and I think we've been mainly impacted when we're trying to go outside in order to commute and so on. Right. And you can't walk as frequently to to and from uh, favorite places like the River Valley in Edmonton because yeah. of the smoke being so, so heavy on certain days. Right. Yeah, it keeps us all inside. Perfect. So... <laughs> I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little bit about who Dr. Lacey is, maybe your academic history, what your research focuses on, hobbies when you're not knee-deep in medical papers, that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, sure. So I actually was originally born in the States, and I went. I moved to New Zealand with my, my family when I was 12, and uh, much of my education was in New Zealand originally. I got my PhD there at the University of Otago. And um, then I had an opportunity to work in Canada because I spent a couple of years in London in the UK 
And I had a researcher there who invited me to come to work in Canada because he got a professor position here at the University of Alberta. <clears throat> so I came over and uh, I'm in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine. So our expertise is focused on understanding mechanisms of inflammation in the lungs. So that's really where I started was in a cell biology kind of approach to understanding how these cells react in your lungs to various different styles, allergens, viruses, wildfire smoke, cigarette smoke, everything in the environment. So this is of great interest to us because we study the signaling mechanisms that are activated in cells following exposure to all these different uh, factors in the environment, in the air around us. So we're very interested in how these things in the air activate the cells and sitting pathways. So what are they? These are actually intracellular, they're inside the cells. They're mechanisms that trigger activation of the cells to such a degree that they start producing pro-inflammatory mediators. And those pro-inflammatory mediators are the reason that we get lung symptoms like coughing and wheezing and um, difficulty breathing, um, waking up at night, coughing and so on. But these, these mediators are so fundamentally important in creating that kind of lung environment. So this is something that I've been interested in for many years. I've been at the University of Alberta since 1997, so it's 26 years now. I hope that was a nutshell answer. <laughs> no, we, we always want the long answer. We never want the short one on this show. So <laughs> perfect. So I, I'm kind of curious as, as a little bit of an ad lib question. Did you always... Uh, enjoy pulmonary the pulmonary side of things or like what what drew you towards the lungs was it just what was available at the time or, or did you have a, a <laughs> it specific? was almost a yeah it was almost well I was very interested in inflammation in general it wasn't specific to the lung I don't know why I was interested in inflammation I think it was because I just found it fascinating that the body produces so many different mediators that can trigger inflammatory responses that it's not as simple as just one factor that comes out. There's actually many different factors, and they can they range from protein to lipid-based mediators to even in carbohydrates. Um, all kinds of different molecules can trigger, you know, inflammation in the lungs. So, I got interested in the lungs mainly because, uh, well, my original research was looking at eosinophils, and eosinophils are an important white blood cell type that is promoted um, or elevated in people with allergy and asthma. And so they're very important because they do get elevated in the lungs of asthmatic patients. So this is one of the one of the reasons I got focused on the lungs was because when there's illness, um, ESM fields are elevated in the lungs. And I do apologize for the noise in the background. I don't know if you're picking up on that. The no, <laughs> no worries at all. It ha happens all the time. You can't you can't have a perfectly quiet environment. So you, yeah. you've, you've mentioned the word mediators a couple of times. Can you can you kind yeah. of define that? I'm I'm curious okay. what, what what that is. Sure. Yeah. So some mediators they come in all shapes and forms, and some of them are proteins, which means that they're um, they're made up of amino acids. So the body actually a lot of people may not realize this, but the body is so much more than just DNA. So you may be aware of DNA research going on. Everybody seems to know what DNA means. Actually, DNA is just basically the Lego blocks of making a body. So it's up to the body to figure out how to assemble the Lego, Lego blocks to make all the organs and so on and make a person to make who you are. Um, so the DNA actually gets converted into proteins. And these proteins actually cause the inflammatory effects in that you see. They are the mediators. There are also other mediators which are produced by proteins, usually enzymes. Enzymes are also proteins. So they can produce lipid mediators such as leukotrienes, prostaglandins, which are highly inflammatory. So a lot of people who have allergic inflammation, for example, they will take anti-inflammatory medication which tries to dampen down prostaglandins and leukotrienes. We also have steroid treatment, which dampens down the cytokines. Those are the mediators that are protein-based, and those are the ones that really cause inflammatory reactions in 
in all over the body, not just the lungs. But the lungs in particular are important when it comes to wildfire smoke exposure because they're the first organs that react to the smoke exposure, right? Smoke is made up of many, many different compounds and materials, a lot of which can activate the inflammatory immediate release in the lungs. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. So I feel like we have a good base of of your studies and how they relate to wildfire smoke. So might as well now in diving straight into your research on the Fort McMurray wildfires and how they affected the short-term lung function of RCMP officers. I'm wondering if we could just uh, have you take us through the project in a nutshell and why you decided to engage in that research in the first place. Mm, well, I could see in 2016, actually just before the Fort McMurray wildfires, I had a sort of a hunch as I was walking home from the university, wildfires were going to be a big problem. And it's because I've been following the climate change literature for quite a few years. Um, ever since the late 90s, like 20 years ago, they've been warning people repeatedly all over the world that there's going to be an increased rate of wildfires. There's going to be increased uh, flooding and hurricanes all around the world. And the reason is simply because when you increase the level of CO2 in the atmosphere, it will trap more of the sun's heat, like a blanket around the earth. And it's, it's surprisingly thin, small, how much atmosphere we have around the planet. So it doesn't take a lot of CO2 to warm the planet up. And when you warm that plant, the planet up, when you warm the surface up, you are going to increase the likelihood of drying out the forests to such a degree that they catch on fire very easily. You are going to increase the likelihood of wildfires being triggered, whether it's human activity or lightning strikes. Um, and you are going to increase the risk of storms and hurricanes and flooding simply because the temperatures are that much warmer. So I would say that um, I became very interested in wildfires because I knew the particulate matter would be a major problem for people with lung, lung diseases. And the particulate matter in the wildfire smoke, as well as the chemicals, can actually make people sick when they don't have any pre-existing lung conditions. So there are reports of some people having perfectly normal lung function, developing uh, lung responses and becoming wheezy, coughing, and short of breath when they were exposed to very high levels of wildfire smoke. Now, the thing that made it so unique about the Fort McMurray wildfire was that the fires actually burned at an extremely hot temperature. And we're seeing the same thing happen this year. And when fires burn at such an extreme temperature as that, you start getting different compounds in the smoke than you would normally see for like a smaller wildfire at lower temperature, burning at a lower temperature. So um, I had a feeling this would happen, and I thought we need to look at the lung function of these people who are exposed to wildfire smoke. And I got into a collaboration with uh, Dr. Lyle Malenka at Synergy Respiratory, Research, Respiratory Care, and um, he's based in Sherwood Park. He's got three clinics, actually, one in Edmonton, one in Sherwood Park, and one in Fort McMurray. And he had a cohort of RCMP officers that he was looking at, and assessing their health. He was asked by RCMP officers, that medical officer for the RCMP to evaluate their lung function um, following their deployment to the Fort McMurray wildfires. And um, it turned out that their lung function, if you simply look at the pulmonary function test as a, as a conventional measure of lung function, they didn't seem to be too badly affected. But then we took them to the next step, which was a um, something called a body box, where you can measure more, um, I guess, granular information, more detailed information about what the lungs are like. And we found that there was one aspect of lung function that was affected, and it was affecting the small airways of the officers. And that was within three months of exposure to the wildfire smoke. So that wildfire smoke was extremely toxic because it went to extremely high levels of particulate matter, the levels of which had never been recorded before, at least in recorded history for weather and wildfire smoke. And so the officers were not wearing proper respirators or PPE. 
they were living, basically working and sleeping in an environment that was filled with smoke, just 24 hours a day for about seven days on average. And that was enough to show lung function changes, at least in the small airways, after they were they were deployed, so three, up to three months after they were deployed. We don't know whether they recovered after three months because we couldn't follow them longitudinally. We could only get a snapshot of their lung function on one visit after they were deployed. So um, I think that a lot of the officers were still, um, they, they recovered, but there were a few that were still experiencing symptoms of wheezing and difficulty um, breathing, even many months, even up to two years after the event. Wow. And this yeah. is a big concern. Definitely. That, that's incredible to know, it, even mm -hmm. having been there for only three months. And when you consider that these are RCMP officers, not to downgrade their jobs because they're incredibly important. But when you think of firefighters who are in the exact thick of it for yeah. like, and, and uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? They're more proximate to the fires that that would have been even exponentially hard on their lungs. Well, there's an interesting difference between RCMP officers and firefighters. The firefighters do wear respirators. Um, ICMP officers did not wear respirators when they were deployed. Their main function was to evacuate the town of Fort McMurray, so that's why they were there. And unfortunately, they were deployed without using proper respirators. Now, I mentioned the small airways. Um, some people might ask, well, what are small airways? You know, what does that mean? That really means the peripheral areas, the lobes of the lungs. So not the main bronchi, which are the main tubes that go into the airways. It's the small alveolar sacs that do the contraction and expansion when you breathe continuously. So those, those were the parts that were infected most strongly by the smoke exposure, the air right. sacs. Right. That does make, I, I think that makes sense personally to me because it's just like a lot of the times the smaller things are affected quicker than than the bigger systems but maybe that's degrading it too much so i'll i'll be quiet on that front uh we'll move on to the next question so your paper focused mainly on the short-term effects like you said that three-month snapshot of wildfire smoke exposure but i'm just wondering if you have any knowledge perhaps from colleagues of long-term effects of wildfire mm -hmm. smoke and i guess this will maybe be anecdotal but anything you know on that front Oh, yeah, there's a lot of concern about the long-term effects. So, um, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data at this time to tell us what the long-term effects of wildfire smoke exposure is. Um, there's a lot of data about cigarette smoke exposure. So, I've been told by many experts that there's really no difference between cigarette smoke and wildfire smoke. The difference, the main difference is that and they quantified it at one point. So Carrie Nado, who is a pulmonary expert based at Stanford University in California, has been on record saying that breathing wildfire smoke is like smoking six to seven cigarettes a day. And um, she later corrected herself. She said, no, it's worse than smoking six to seven cigarettes a day because there's no filter. So... If you smoke cigarettes, at least you have a filter that stops the larger particles from getting in, or some of the larger particles anyway. And with wildfire smoke, you have no filter unless you wear a mask. So you can actually opt to wear a mask to prevent uh, too much particulate matter from going into your lungs. Right. And yeah. Actually, beneficial. Yeah, the, it, it's it's funny. One of the things my mom says is, I think she used it to scare me when I was a kid to not smoke. But she said, you might as well just wrap your mouth around the tailpipe of a car. And, <laughs> and I think the hard thing to to when you hear that, obviously, it's it's not the same thing. But when you hear of something that extreme, wrap your mouth around the tailpipe of a car, you can't really do that with wildfires. Yes, you can wear a mask, but and I'm sure much research needs to be done on that if N95s do anything to stop the small particulate matter from wildfires. But yeah, that it, it's it's incredible to think of that. It's just something we can't do. Obviously, smoking is a choice, but wildfires, if you want to go outside and, and like you said, commute to your university, you don't have an option yeah. other than other than wearing a mask. So yeah, sure. that's 
That's very interesting. So I, I, I did speak with some friends and family about this topic, just being so timely. I know that they would have some questions for you um, and specifically for an esteemed researcher such as yourself, uh, specifically about the effects of wildfire smoke on overall well-being. And they came up with some great questions, I'll be honest. So the first of them being, why? and you, actually you did mention this, so, so I'd love to dive into it. Uh, why do some people feel breathless when exposed to wildfire smoke, when they otherwise have pretty good lung fu- function, no, no lung disease at all. Why, why is that? Okay, so when you become breathless, it means that the resistance of your airways is increasing, right? So what does that mean, resistance? That means the air can't flow in and out of your lungs as effectively as it usually does when there's no So that's the resistance is increasing. The air can't get in and out as fast. It literally means the diameter of your airways is narrowing. So the airway narrowing is a way that we describe obstructive air diseases, lung diseases, I should say. So when you get that bronchoconstriction, that's what we call it, is bronchoconstriction. That is directly caused by two factors. One, it's airway smooth muscles are contracting. So they actually form bands around the bronchial to constrict the airways so that they become narrower. They are constricting because they're reacting to the environment. Usually in an indirect manner. So there's other cells in the airway that trigger the, the, the bronchoconstriction. They trigger constriction of the muscle. Okay. There's a second way in which this is impacted where you get inflammation. Inflammation is literally measured with white blood cell into the lung tissue, which then causes swelling, redness, mucus production, and other things going on with which typically follow inflammatory reactions. You get inflammatory mediated release from these white blood cells. That triggers the swelling of the tissue, and it also triggers the swelling of the tissue, so the muscles contract. This is why you're wheezing. Okay? So there's been, for a long time, there was a thought that all you have to do is relax those smooth muscles, and that's why people use puffers all the time. Puffers are ventolin, which is a short beta agonist, it's a chemical which causes relaxation of the airway smooth muscle. But that's not the whole story. If you simply relax the airway smooth muscle, it feels great, but you're not dealing with the underlying inflammation. So this is why I made my focus so, so exclusively on understanding inflammatory pathways. It's that's the reason that people have wheezing. It's really because of the inflammation. So you sure you can relax those muscles, but you're not going to get rid of that inflammation if you only use the puffer that is short-acting beta agonist or ventilator. Right. A lot of people have been become quite ill when they only use short-acting beta agonist, and that's why people have understood. Doctors have realized over the years you really need to treat the underlying inflammation. So now the main so this is asthma medication. Um, now the the the, the usual a pre, a treatment approach is to use inhaled corticosteroids together with short-acting or long-acting beta agonists. So the short-acting and long-acting is just different chemicals that do the same thing. They relax the smooth muscle. So now if you have both inhaled corticosteroids and LABA, so long-acting beta agonists, two compounds, you will treat the inflammation as well as the bronchial smooth muscle, airway smooth muscle constriction. So both of them get tackled. Right. The more recently, we got biologics that are coming out, which are very exciting. So they're antibodies that can actually target cytokines, which are the proteins and mediators that are released. And they're proving to be quite effective in treatment of asthma. Yeah, that, that's incredibly interesting. I know I had to take Ventolin yesterday. Uh, I had a pulmonary function test and they were seeing if it, if it had any uh, effects on my lungs. I, I'm not sure, maybe you can um, attest to this, but the respiratory therapist was telling me that she wasn't saying that that it w- doesn't work on all people she was saying that if your if your lungs actually like take to the ventolin some people ventolin doesn't work for is that is that true that's correct yeah okay. so 
There are people, so there's a reversibility um, quality to the lungs constricting. So if your lungs are constricting and you're wheezing and you take phenylalanine and then it reverses and you can breathe much more easily, then you probably have something like asthma. If you take the phenylalanine and you cannot get any relief from it and you, your airways don't open up, your pulmonary function, function test results don't show an improvement, you probably have COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So the distinction between those two diseases is that COPD is not reversible. You don't get reversible airway obstruction. So that means there's some scarring or fibrosis of the lung tissue. With asthma, there's reversibility and there's no permanent, generally no permanent scarring unless you have severe asthma. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I was kind of curious of that. It was funny. I, I forgot it was an allergy appointment, but I forgot that I was taking a pulmonary function test and yeah. they had me on like the, on all the different machines. And I was trying to take mental notes so that I could talk yeah. about it on future podcast episodes. It was really interesting. Uh, and then taking yeah. the vent, Ventolin, it was, it was really everybody, everybody who had the lung condition should do a pulmonary function test. It should be absolutely mandatory. I don't know why it isn't. Definitely. So many doctors try to just deal with the symptoms directly by giving inhalers to their patients, and they should really be putting their patients in for a pulmonary function test. Right. Because that measures more accurately whether you have reversible airway disease or irreversible airway disease, and that impacts your treatment. Right. It, it should almost be as common as like a like a dental cleaning, especially if you absolutely. have a lung condition. Yeah. If you have any lung condition, if you have any wheezing, it should absolutely be something as part of your checkup. For sure. Yeah. So, so on another uh, aspect of wildfire smoke, I had another friend ask me uh, if, if wildfire smoke can penetrate into buildings, if there isn't a good enough air filtration system. That's a really good question. So it depends on the buildings. So some buildings have what are called HEPA filters, H-E-P-A. And those HEPA filters are pretty good for the most part, removing a lot of the particulate matter that can come in from outside. But not every building has them. So, and sometimes people put the HEPA filters in and they don't change them very often. So they get clogged up. We've had that happen in our building. Um, it's interesting. There's a, there's a whole science behind uh, the ventilation of air inside buildings. Some people take the science very seriously and make sure to do everything completely by the book, and others kind of, I don't know, are limited by their budget or personnel, and they don't look after it as carefully. I know the building that I'm in at the University of Alberta, they have two-thirds of the air is recirculated, and one-third is fresh air intake. So we have a certain amount of dilution of the airway, I mean, the sorry, the wildfire smoke, if it's really bad. Um, but... Sometimes I smell it in the office and I'm like, I wonder if they really are filtering. So I don't know. Filters can be a problem too with the increased risk of um, Legionnaire's disease if you don't replace them frequently, particularly in humid environments. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, on the lines of filters, staying along those lines, I was also wondering if portable air purifiers make a difference in wildfire season. Uh, you see, you've seen those little fancy ones in doctors' offices since COVID. So, do they make a difference, or is it are they just too small for, say, like a single family home? If, would you need like one in every room and need to buy ten, or or can they can can one in in the middle of your house actually make a difference? Well, I well, my personal opinion is that it's probably sufficient just to close all the windows in your own, own home um, and just run the fan through the furnace and make sure you replace the furnace filters. Uh, a lot of people forget to replace the furnace filters and then you just have crappy air going around the house all the time. Um, so you really need to replace those filters and just recirculate the air through your house if you're feeling a bit warm. If you have air conditioning, it's even better. It cleans up the air a bit more to put it through clean furnace filters. If you find that you're still getting too much smoke in the house, even with the windows closed and you have your furnace hooked up and you've got an air conditioner going or whatever, um, 
yes, an air purifier would help to clean the air up just a little bit more because those air portable air purifiers, if they have the HEPA filters in them, are quite beneficial at cleaning up the air in your home. This is a little specific, but pertinent to your research on Fort McMurray and the and and the high temperatures. Do you think that the particulate matter that was smaller could more easily penetrate through the HEPA filters just because of the nature of how small the particles are? Yeah, so this is an interesting point about smoke. It forms a, a distribution of particle sizes. So the diameter of the particles, it, it varies from very, very small nanoparticle size to micro-sized particles. So the, the way the airways work is that um, particles of about 10 microns or smaller get up through your nose. If they're five microns or smaller, they go through about the middle of your lungs. And if they're less than two, 2.5 microns, they will penetrate the small airways. That's why we have the PM 2.5 designation for part- particle size. You might have heard of two, PM 2.5. The reason for that it's a it's, so it's a measure of the um, the quality of the air in our environment, and sometimes they'll say PM two point five is ten uh, micrograms per cubic meter, and that's okay. That's a, an acceptable level. Where you start to get concerned is when it goes up into hundreds or thousands of micrograms per cubic meter, um, and that means that you are getting a very large number of particles that are smaller than that are 2.5 microns or smaller going into your small airways um, and they're triggering an inflammatory reaction through oxidative stress that's usually the mechanism um, and then your body has to compensate has to combat the oxidative stress by having naturally present antioxidants in the lungs um, and then there's also cells that try to clear the particles out. So there's lots of cells in your lungs that can grab a hold of the particles when they're trapped in the mucus and they try to engulf it and digest it and get rid of it, excrete it. So this is this is the function of macrophages which are present in the airways. There's a cell type that is most predominant in the airways. Um, so... Whether those small particles can penetrate the HEPA filters really depends on the quality of the filters. So, yes, you can get nanoparticles that go straight through the filters, um, and they can cause damage in the lungs. We don't know that much about exactly what the nanoparticles do when they go into our bodies. Uh, There's a lot of concern that nanoparticles can penetrate right through to your brain, your liver, your kidney. And if for pregnant women, they can go straight into the fetus and cause fetal problems um, before the birth of the child. And so nanoparticles are a real concern that they could potentially penetrate through filters. That's why we want to reduce wildfire smoke as much as we possibly can, because we cannot prevent nanoparticle exposure. The other amazing thing about nanoparticles is they're out in the air and we get them anyway from car exhaust and truck exhaust. We can't see them. They're invisible. Yeah, that, that that's a major problem. I never even connected back to when you were connecting climate change to wildfires. I never even thought that just a rising temperature dries things out in effect and it just makes it easier to start wildfires. So a lot of a lot of the world's problems connect back to climate change and and People who want to deny that can do that all they want, but it's it's, mm. it's a proven science at this point. So anyways, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole, and I don't think either of us <laughs> want to. So we'll, we'll change gears a little bit here, and I know that you are not a psychologist, so I'm not looking for anything more than speculation or, or, or actual knowledge you have, but um, I'm just wondering how you perceive wildfire smoke as affecting people's mental health. So do you think there is any merit behind the notion that people can actually be worse off mentally because of wildfire smoke? Of course. Of course. It's a lot like um, having a bad weather day, um, except worse, (laughs) because you not only have less sunlight, it looks apocalyptic, right? When you see wildfire smoke all around, People are are really impacted by the way the sun suddenly looks very orange 
You can look straight at it, and that's not normal. And so you feel a sense of abnormality in your environment. So, yeah, I can only speculate as to whether it has long-term effects on mental health. But to me, I sort of feel like people are swamped with a lot of negative news right now. And I don't want to just layer on another frustrating, upsetting bit of news that the wildfire smoke is so dangerous. I just want to try to appeal to the people who continue to support uh, fossil fuel industry just blindly without realizing the consequences of that support. Um, I want farmers to realize that it's not a good idea to continue um, working as if everything is going to be exactly the same as it was 100 years ago. Uh, just start preparing as much as you can for increased wildfire smoke um, presence in the air and try to mitigate it the best we can. So I have all sorts of ideas. solution-oriented person. <laughs> I'm not an expert on how to mitigate it, but I have some ideas. I don't know if I can go ahead and voice them here. Can I oh, voice go for my ideas? Of course, oh, yes, please. Great. Um, so what I feel is would be a great idea would be to have satellite imagery of wildfire outbreaks in the province of Alberta as well as elsewhere in Canada. And to connect that to firefighters who can be just deployed on the ground to immediately respond to wildfires or, or fires that seem to be going beyond a certain set threshold for fires. So I'm sure there's a lot of science behind how big the fire has to be before it starts to expand into something uncontrollable within minutes. Um, there should be a way of having like a network of volunteer firefighters that are connected together and I'm told by satellite imagery analysis, combined with um, weather um, analysis and forest humidity analysis, you need to be able to. So that I've just heard just a few days ago that um, when the when you reach reach the three thirties, thirty degrees temperature, thirty kilometer an hour wind, and thirty percent moisture content, the risk of wildfires dramatically goes up. So I'm thinking, why can't we set up a system where we can see those conditions arriving or beginning to happen? Uh, we should be able to mitigate the forest fire danger a lot faster instead of just sitting back and waiting and going, oh my goodness, now two square kilometers of, is on fire. We can't do anything. Because if you wait until it's so big, you can't fight it very easily. Whereas you try to grab it when it's really small, it's a lot easier. Right. That's my point. The other long-term solution I think of is that we need to get away from natural gas fire to coal-fired power stations. We need to literally start thinking of very innovative ways to get electricity, to meet our electricity demand. And there are lots of different ways to generate electricity. We do not need to rely completely on natural gas or coal for energy. Yeah, and people don't like hearing that in our province, but it's just the way of the future. Like, mm -hmm. even if you think about uh, the gas demand, uh, not gas, car demands, I think it's by 2035, all cars sold have to be electric, something like that. And obviously with politics that may get pushed back and we don't like to hear that, but it's just, it's good that it's the way of the world and that hopefully by, let's say 2050, every single brand new car sold will be electric and and that's the way it's going that's the way it should go and it'll help reduce things like we've talked yeah. about everything and we have to be show. a little bit careful about the electric vehicles too because the electric vehicles use over 200 kilograms of minerals whereas the normal combustion engine uses 20 combustion engine car uses 20 kilograms of mineral okay so 10 times as much cobalt lithium and so on has to go into each electric vehicle so for me, from my perspective, the answer to transportation is public transit. Why the heck don't we have high-speed trains like they have in Europe, Japan, and other countries around the world? What is wrong with having a little bit of high-speed transit, you know, trains between Edmonton and Calgary, or 
along the um, Ontario route between Toronto and Windsor in Montreal with a very dense populations. We have absolutely no high-speed trains in Canada, and that means everybody is using much less efficient means of transportation in private cars or buses. And uh, I think trains need to, trains for me are the way to, way of the future. And you can make them so comfortable. Have you ever been in a high speed train in Europe or in Japan? I haven't. So no. I haven't myself. No, they're really comfortable. They're really nice. I highly recommend people everyone try them because they're very very nice form of transportation. Way yeah. more energy efficient. Definitely sounds incredible. Yeah, I think. I'm not sure if that fell through, if it was just a rumor, but I'm pretty sure Edmonton Calgary chain is coming in the next hundred years. Saying that, <laughs> maybe less than a hundred, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. We're, I, I'm trying to argue for an LRT out to St. Albert. That's where I live, so <laughs> we'll we'll see yeah, which one comes first. Push hard for that. It's a good idea. Definitely, yeah. Edmonton to Calgary or the LRT to St. Albert. We'll see which one, which one's built yeah. first. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. hopefully soon, just to just to combat things like, like uh, climate change, like you mentioned. So, absolutely, yeah. Kind kind of wrapping things up to a close. We're we're getting a little bit close to time. We still have a bit of time though. So I'm just wondering, what are some kind of smaller tips or tricks you can give to our listeners to combat wildfire smoke in the here and now? Obviously, there's grand and macro things that we've talked about but what are some small things that you can you can think of to give our listeners when the smog is just super thick outside what what would you recommend? yeah so the small things you can do if you are coughing and wheezing put on an n95 mask you can buy them from uh, drugstores or whatever on order them online put on that mask and and, and limit your time outside um if you're inside, then just shut the windows in your home. Keep the doors closed. And uh, just if you feel like you're getting too warm, just run the fan on your furnace to circulate the air. Make sure you replace your furnace filters. And then if you feel like they're still, you're too hot, then get an air conditioner for your home. Uh, and if you feel like the air is still too, too difficult to breathe, then definitely get an air purifier. But the air purifier for me is like kind of the last resort. You really don't need it most of the time. It's kind of costly to buy them. So um, make sure your filters are replaced. That's the other thing. So make sure your filters, there's different quality filters you can use for your furnace. There's some allergy and asthma stuffers that is a lot better than most of the, the dust out of the air or the smoke. You can potentially invest in those. I think otherwise, give each other social support too during these very difficult times. I think social um, support is really important. When people are struggling to get used to visuals, the appearance of it and smell in the air, just remember that this is this is transient. It'll go away in the fall. Winter will come back and it will get rid of all the smoke. I find I actually look forward to, to the fall because uh, the smoke disappears from the air. <laughs> it's not so bad. The snow isn't so bad after all. <laughs> yeah, we lose the heat, but we also lose the wildfire smoke. I guess that's the way to look at it. Yeah. Definitely. I, I wanted to touch on quickly, you mentioned before, I just found it funny, you mentioned how the orange haze kind of makes it look apocalyptic in, in the sky. Um, and, and it's funny. I, I have both sides. I, on one side, apocalyptic, like, uh, fiction is one of my favorite book fictions. And, and we, th we think of things like, uh, new TV shows, like the last of us that came out, uh, recently having said that on the other side, it is absolutely one of my most terrifying topics, especially in the real world. I remember, I don't have a great memory, but I remember back to the day, uh, when, uh, during the Fort McMurray wildfires, when the smoke kind of just enveloped Edmonton and it was absolutely orange and just terrifying. And I looked outside, I was yeah. working, I was working at a car dealership to put me through, I believe it was the first years of my undergraduate degree. And I was just, I just looked outside and I said, I'm not going outside. You guys can, I will, yeah. I will quit before I go outside. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll dust the cars off in the showroom if you want me to, but 
it, I, I remember that vividly. Uh, and, it, yeah. that, and it was, it was just, I remember um, that as well. It yeah. was a pretty terrifying summer. I think, um, one of the other things you can try to reassure yourself with is that this is actually kind of a natural process. So we have been suppressing wildfires for a very long time. And we have been preventing the forest from allowing it to burn, which it naturally does. Um, in fact, the indigenous people used to burn the forest deliberately, um, quite frequently, in order to clear land, in order to provide area for bison to graze, um, and also because it, it, it allowed them to roam around and find places to live and and it was very much a part of the natural upkeep of the land to, to burn things down. So we're just getting a very extreme form of it. That's all. It's just a lot more than what we normally need to see. And I think we just have to accept that, yeah, fire is part of the natural order of things in the, on this planet. I was told by a, a colleague of mine at work years ago that Alberta used to burn to the ground from top to bottom of the province once every hundred years it just burned completely and we've been stopping that natural cycle for a long time maybe what we're going through now is just the natural burning of the forest that has to happen and it's just particularly bad because of the warming temperatures and uh yeah just accept that fire is a natural part of existence in the boreal forest which normally burns down so every so often it's not right. fun yeah <laughs> but, it's just like any other weather pattern right like when it's raining you don't go is. outside maybe we have to take into consideration that like you said we've been suppressing fires so maybe we have to take into the fact that when it's super smoky out you don't go outside it's kind of like a rain day just yeah. think of it like that and maybe yeah. just don't look outside as much just to keep your own mental health in check yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or just accept it, you know, accept it yeah. being this is kind of natural. This is kind of something that has to happen. True. Forests do need to burn. And a lot of pine trees, a lot of uh, evergreen trees don't survive without fire. So there are quite a few species that their um, their seeds don't germinate properly until there's a fire. The only thing is, it would be really good if we could drag some of the dead wood out of the forest and use it for burning for energy. You know, so that's one thing that we can. My husband and I have talked about this frequently because he used to work in uh, power stations, and he said, "Yeah, the the fuel. There's so much fuel in those forests. It would be so useful to burn it and generate electricity, and it would be a fantastic way to do it in a carbon neutral manner." But um, the problem is, it's costly to get that wood out of the forest. One thing that someone else told me is that they do cut a lot of trees down and they don't bother to retrieve the logs necessarily out of the forest for burning. And it is possible to reconfigure power stations so that they can take what they call biomass to burn for electricity. So basically all you need to do is have something to burn so you can boil water, generate steam, and that drives the turbines and that generates electricity. It's very simple. So if somebody could come up with a great way to pull out all that dead wood from the forest and deliver it to biomass burning generators, then or power station, that would be fantastic. But I don't know if anybody wants to do that. Or yeah, it's we, too costly. <laughs> we just yeah. need some some smart entrepreneur to f- find a way to to drag all the logs out. I've never even thought about that. That's that's incredible to think that that's uh, yeah. There's an enormous amount of energy. Sure. yeah that that as a power source is incredible to think of what i well yeah that that's amazing so perfect I, I think that touches on all of the wildfire research so that research aside your wildfire your wildfire research aside i'm just wondering if you have any upcoming research for that our listeners can follow what are you what are you working on right now that kind of stuff well right now what we're doing is um, we're focusing actually on COVID. We got some projects looking at COVID, and we keep our we keep our options quite wide open about what kind of research projects we work on. Um, we haven't got anything in plan for wildfire. I think to really do a proper study on it, you have to look at 
uh, a large population of people. And we'd have to look at air, air function, airway function, as well as the incidence of other things like cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, other kinds of wildfire smoke-related illnesses, maybe asthma and COPD. But that would take a very large uh, study that involves a lot of researchers, I don't think, and, and a lot of participants. I don't think it's very easy to do because of the sporadic nature of wildfire smoke that it hits in certain areas for short periods of time and then it goes away. So you have to try to figure out, is this accumulative damage over many years? Who knows? Is this exposure to so many things? So right now what we're looking at is a cytokine release from airway epithelial cell. I've got three students examining that. I've got one project where we're looking at samples of male nose and throat um, epithelial cells. There's just the first cell that you encounter when you when you sample from those areas. Uh, and looking at the types of cytokines that are being released. So those cytokines are very important targets for biologics that are being used right now to treat asthma and CFPD. So we're very interested in those. We're actually interested in a group of cytokines called alarming cytokines, which are really important inflammatory mediators. They trigger, they're, they're the very beginning of the cascade of responses in the immune system. Um, so there's that. And then I have a postdoctoral fellow, Shiva Moitra, who's looking at epidemiology uh, lung diseases, lung illnesses. Um, he's got quite a few projects he wants to look at to, to examine populations that have maybe an increased risk of airway diseases. Uh, I think he's focusing right now on quite a few topics to do with COVID, um, vaping in pregnant mothers, and other projects like that. So he's collaborating with the European researchers as well on this. So very we're pretty excited for our, our ideas going forward. Yeah, very interesting. That's awesome. I'll have to reach out to him. He sounds like everything lung diseases is up his alley. So that yeah, that that's truly amazing. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to put you on the spot with where listeners can find your work. I'm sure they can just uh, Google. Dr. Paige Lacey on University of Alberta website and, and find your research there. That's probably the best place. Yep. Awesome. I think it probably shows most of my research and some of the publications. Perfect. Well, that was such an interesting topic. I know that the listeners will be so grateful for all your wisdom on everything to do with wildfires uh, and, and lung health and overall health. So thank you, Dr. Lacey, for being on our show and giving us some of your very valuable time. Oh, thank you, Jacob, for interviewing me. That was very nice to have this opportunity to talk about this. Of course, I feel very privileged to have you on the show. So with that, I'll just send us right through to our outro. That was such a great discussion with Dr. Lacey, learning about all the ways that smoke can affect our lungs and even the different kinds of smoke was absolutely incredible. I know it certainly increased my knowledge about wildfires and how they can affect our day-to-day living, and I hope it helped you as well. As we always do on the Unsung Lung Podcast, we'll finish off the show with my final three concluding thoughts. If you're new to the show, this is just three main topics or things that I've pulled from the interview that I think are worth repeating and remembering for the future. To start it off, the first thought that I had was when Dr. Lacey was discussing climate change increasing the quantity of wildfires that we have throughout the world. The more CO2 that we have in Earth's atmosphere, the more of the sun's heat that we trap. So it's just incredible to think that climate change is directly impacting the lung health of not only those with pre-established lung disease, but also those with completely healthy lungs. And obviously this stems from drying out forests and then when you drought a forest and then you get a storm and actually climate change leads to increased storms. So if you have increased storms, you have increased lightning, lightning starts wildfires, uh, things of that nature. Uh, And then you just have more wildfires affecting more people's lungs, lung conditions. So it's it's really dangerous, um, obviously 
climate change in general, but when you think, when it, you get down to the nuance of it and it's affecting people's lung conditions and even just general healthy lungs, it's really scary. So we have to do our part uh, to, to mitigate climate change, whether that's being more conscious about using your gas in your car or, or actually just even having a fire in the backyard. Yes, sometimes, sometimes it's fun, but sometimes just the particulate matter and extra heat and things of that nature aren't the best. So we just have to be careful with how we, we treat the environment around us and really be conscious that even small little things that we do in our everyday lives can affect climate change and then that trickles down to lung health in the long run. The second thought that I had is that there is actually differing levels of toxicity among wildfire smoke. That's, that's incredible to think. As Dr. Lacey mentioned, the Fort McMurray wildfires were particularly dangerous as the fires burned at such a high temperature and the higher the temperature, the smaller the particulate matter, meaning those smaller particles can get deeper into our lungs and obviously cause more problems. So it's kind of cool to think that it's not just wildfire smoke in general that's dangerous for for our, our health, our lung health and, and things of that nature, but it can actually, it's, all, it's almost on a sliding scale where it can get more dangerous the hotter things get. I definitely had no idea that that was a thing. I just thought that all wildfire, all wildfire smoke was bad for us and it really didn't change, but it definitely makes sense. The hotter you burn something, the smaller the material is gonna get so that it can actually penetrate deep into your lungs and into the small uh, sacs deep into your lungs that are really the, the powerhouses that, that transfer the oxygen from the air into your bloodstream. And if those are affected by small particulate wildfire smoke, obviously that's gonna cause a huge problem. So yeah, that, that that's, I think I just mentioned this one because strictly from an interesting sense. I don't know if there's much we can do about it other than mitigating wildfires in general, but actually reducing the heat of wildfires uh, in in the wild is, I don't know if we can do anything about that other than actually bringing down the number of wildfires that we have in general. So yeah, that, that was my second thought and I, I just brought it up because I thought it was incredibly interesting. My final concluding thought is about how Dr. Lacey cited a study coming out of Stanford University and how breathing in wildfire smoke all day is equivalent to and even worse than smoking six to seven cigarettes a day. It can be worse as there is no filter when breathing in wildfire smoke, whereas if you're smoking a cigarette, there is a filter. It's kind of weird to think about how major cigarette companies are sort of doing a favor to their customers, whereas Mother Nature in her infinite wisdom doesn't give us any kind of filter. Don't get me wrong, I am in no way sticking up for cigarette companies. It's just funny to think about how we can walk outside and be worse off than if we consciously choose to smoke a cigarette, or in this case, six to seven or even more. So I think that just goes to show it's kind of a practical showing of how dangerous wildfire smoke is. It, it, it gives us something to grab onto, something tangible of how dangerous it is. And maybe we use that imagery and we apply it to our lives and we go out a little bit less when the wildfire smoke is intense or we keep our windows closed and maybe our blinds closed even to keep the heat out so that you don't have to worry about keeping your window shut and elevating the temperature in your home. So. Yeah, it, it, it's it's crazy to think about how that kind breathing in that much smoke can be that bad for us. I mean, it's not crazy. It, it just honestly, it's kind of common sense. It's just I think the the intense part is thinking is picturing it is putting a number to it, six to seven cigarettes. That's that's what what really is the shock factor. So we have to use that. We have to apply it to our lives, and we just have to be conscious of when. There's bad days uh, of smoke in the in the air, and we just have to be able to kind of adapt and and live with it. Ultimately, as Dr. Lacey said, it's a natural thing. We've been suppressing wildfires for a long, long time with our incredible firefighting duties that uh, incredible women, men and women use, and and we use our technology to put wildfire smoke wildfires out uh, to save homes or just natural space in general so it's natural but we have to adapt with it and I, I think that's possible okay so that does it for our show today a reminder to visit our website at www.ablung.ca 
And this month I'd like to give a shout out to Breathing Space. You've probably heard me talk about Breathing Space before. I've mentioned it a bunch of times on this podcast, but I can't mention it enough. It's the lung transplant home away from home that Alberta Lung is building right next to the University of Alberta Hospital. And it's just going to be a place for people who are going through lung transplant to stay themselves and their caregiver and kind of alleviate the burden, the financial burden that is placed on anyone uh, who needs a lung transplant in Western Canada and even the territories. So as we know, lung transplant can be incredibly expensive. Canadian healthcare is amazing, but it doesn't cover everything, especially living expenses. So I've heard stories of lung transplants being up into the six figures costing someone, which is incredible to think. Normally, when we think of an operation, we think, uh, and that kind of cost, we think of the United States being that incredibly expensive. But we get that here because we just don't have the, the capacity to put lung transplant facilities all over Canada. So University of Alberta here in Edmonton houses and hosts all of Western Canada and even into the territory. So uh, we're building that home. We, we need lots of funding. Uh, Alberta Lung isn't funded by the government. We do all our funding uh, and fundraising ourselves. So we need your help to build that incredible facility. So uh, please take a visit down to our website. Look at the renderings. They're incredible. They're amazing. It looks like, honestly, like a health hotel i'll call it i don't know if i've heard that yet but i like that phrase i like that turn of saying so maybe i'll i'll send that through to our ceo and she can use that it's it's a health hotel it's a place for you for lung transplant uh individuals to go heal get their procedure done and just not worry about the things like food and and accommodations that they otherwise would have to Perfect. So with that, I'll do as I always do and leave you with our motto, just remember to breathe.